At the start of this program, I mentioned that the journal Science once said that botany is suitable only for ladies, not for chaps. Okay, that was in 1887, but today we shall introduce two brilliant botanists. One who helped make our Royal Botanic Garden Sydney the world-renowned place it is today, our oldest scientific establishment, Professor Carrick Chambers. And there's one of his former students, Peter Bernhardt, who's just finished reading an enthralling biography of Carrick, now 93. Tea was offered twice a day while I was a graduate student at the School of Botany at Melbourne University back in the late 70s. No bell summoned us. We had our internal clocks. It was easy to adopt the civilized custom after years of quickie American coffee breaks, and I was grateful they approved of graduate students mingling with staff and faculty. Sitting at the same table with Professor Carrick Chambers was a highlight. He always had something stimulating to share, and his delivery was perfect, whether he was commenting on the conservation of kakapo parrots, the proposed addition of an anti-moth chemical to baby blankets, or the deterioration of important fossils following mining cuts in Gippsland. Carrick's remarks were always insightful and precise, yet restrained. He was critical yet courteous, a technique few master. The herbarium of the Sydney Botanical Garden did have a tea bell. By the time I arrived in 1990, Carrick had been director of the garden for almost four years. His busy schedule meant he couldn't join us every day. When he did, one noticed his increased enthusiasm, yet his delivery remained intact, and he let us know what it meant to have to say, yes, minister. I left in 92, but returned for research projects over two decades. As a guest of Carrick and his wife Margaret in 2016, I was shown pages of a memoir he was writing entitled Becoming a Botanist. That book wasn't launched until March of this year, and Carrick is now 93. An attractive and absorbing read at 175 pages, you may find it as like sharing a morning cuppa and a cheese biscuit with its author. Upon finishing the book, it's clear to me now how this man had such a profound effect on Australian botany its museums, urban landscapes, science communication, and why he was chosen so often to spearhead many public works. Born in 1930, Carrick was another child of the Depression in another hard-up family in Auckland. A good and varied educational system turned him into the polymath that would later impress Australian administrators. At Agricultural College, a professor known for hybridizing alfalfa encouraged him to grow sweet peas, which won prizes, and to keep bees over the war years, but Carrick didn't want to be a farmer. Teachers College taught him valuable skills about lecturing, but he didn't want to be assigned to some isolated country town. Admission to Auckland University would give him a bachelor's degree in botany with an emphasis on ferns. 
That would occupy him for the remainder of his career. That meant working during vacations to afford academia, so Chapter 7 delves into his dangerous jobs at wharves and slaughterhouses. The words horrible and horrific appear four times over two pages. Fellowships at the University of Sydney gave him his Ph.D. A scholarship to Cambridge meant training in electron microscopy in the famous Cavendish lab. Now I understand one reason why the Melbourne School of Botany, which Carrick joined in 61, had such fine microscopy rooms where you made your own glass knives to cut cereal sections or spatter-coated your specimen with gold. In Melbourne, Carrick received his first invitations to contribute to big projects for public education over two decades. You can still see the results in the native and exotic plants used to landscape Melbourne University, the kitchen garden at Captain Cook's Cottage in the Fitzroy Gardens, and the heirloom fruit orchards at Ripponley. Premier Neville Rand's decision to make Professor Chambers director of the Sydney Garden in 86 now looks like the most logical choice. It's here we learn about the formative years of the native plant collection at Mount Annan, the Cool Zone Garden at Mount Toma, and the author's valuable opinions on the information needed to make effective labels and exhibit signs. Chapter 24 is a personal favorite, as Carrick describes the events leading to the discovery of the Wolomai Pines, how he and Dr. Andrew Drinnen gave it its scientific name, along with his decision to mass-propagate them so any botanical garden around the world could have a tree that should have gone extinct 40 million years ago. Within the Sydney Botanical Garden, there were his triumphs like the fernery and losses like the bicentennial rose garden that was not maintained properly after he retired and has since been demolished. The author states that at some stage, he hopes that a new, comprehensive, and modern rose garden will take its place. He writes... In order to achieve this, highly trained, specialised staff need to be in charge of the cultivation and pruning. Once again, I hear the understated criticism in the urbane voice of my superior. You know, any trained science communicator can design an exhibit that's educational or attractive or even inspirational. Professor Chambers made any exhibit all three at once. I'm still learning, but you still can't grow decent sweet peas. Never mind. It's tea time. Peter Bernhardt in St. Louis, Missouri and his tea time ceremony. The book is Becoming a Botanist by Claudia Chambers all about her father who helped make so much of Australia, especially the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, the exquisite and inspiring place it is today.